Hey everyone, welcome to this week's edition of Bible Discoveries, the weekend show. Of course, if this is your first time here, what we do is we discuss big topics as they pop up because we're reading through the Bible this year. So as they pop up on our reading plan, we're talking about them. And we also like to gather questions from you guys as well, the viewers, and we like to respond to them and discuss them. So thank you so much for being here. And thank you for being here too, Matlock. Thank you. How you doing? Doing good. You had a you had a cold for the last little while, and you're almost over it. I'm almost. I still have it. You're still like, coughing a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Still a little nasal. But we're almost there. Yeah. We're cresting the the yes, hill. Yes. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why don't you tell everyone what we were reading? This All week? right. So, hopefully you read. If not, that's okay. Answering questions related to Habakkuk one to Zechariah fourteen. Yeah. Yes. A lot of questions there. A lot of prophecy. Different things like that. People just want to know the intimate details. Let's say of who's Joshua, and um. Why is uh, Habakkuk relenting about uh, commenting about this evil? Why does God use evil? Questions of that nature. Yeah. Now, the big question today, Corey, is a viewer question today. Fantastic. All right. I like when that happens. Yeah. And it's from Mark C. And the big question is, if fighting was okay in the Old Testament, then is it okay to fight for our rights now? Mm. That's the big question. Right. And we're not going to answer that question yet, so stay tuned to the very end. But for now, I would like to start off with the first question. Please do. Yes. I just thought of something, so I'm quickly writing down oh, yeah. a note <laughs> yeah, from yeah. Mark C. All but right. yeah, okay, fire, shoot, yes. what's going on? All right, all right. So the first question relates to Habakkuk. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go to Habakkuk. Yeah. Verses 5 to 11. Now, it's pretty much all of Habakkuk, but mm -hmm. you, this one's been highlighted. Why does God use evil to accomplish his plans? Why does God use evil to accomplish his plan? Yes. That's right. And you know what? When... This is the theme of Habakkuk, isn't it? So when we're reading through Habakkuk, Habakkuk knows that the Babylonian Empire is coming and it's going to destroy Jerusalem. It's going to destroy Judah. And his whole complaint, his whole issue with God is, is he's essentially saying, and obviously I'm paraphrasing a lot here, but he's essentially saying to God, God, I know that you're righteous. So how is it that you are using an evil people to destroy and bring righteous judgment on your people. Why why wouldn't you just do it? Why would you use them as their tools? So I think this this question is is quite aptly um, quite aptly asked. But luckily, because Habakkuk asks this question, it's also answered, and the answer is given in the scripture. Um, and it's really it's really interesting uh to look at and i love habakkuk's attitude because he doesn't understand what god is doing he knows what it is that god is doing he believes god is going to do what he said he's going to do but he's really struggling with it but the posture that he takes towards god is really interesting he comes before god and he asks his question but then in verse two, in chapter 2, verse 1, this is what Habakkuk says. This is the posture that he takes, which I think is really instructive. This is how I want to be, and I'm not always like this, but I want to be like this. This is a goal, I think. Uh, Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So Habakkuk's like, okay. Now I'm going to wait and I'm going to watch and I'm going to see 
I'm looking for the answer. I'm waiting for God to move. And I'm going to carefully think about how to respond to God's answer. So he, there's this expectation mm -hmm. that he's asked and now God is going to answer. Okay, so I'm not going to read all of God's answer because it essentially takes up most of chapter two and chapter three of Habakkuk. But um, verse six of Habakkuk chapter two, God begins to pronounce woes on Babylon, also called the, the Chaldeans here. Essentially, that judgment is coming for Babylon. And it says this in verse eight, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. So for this violence, for this evil, they are going to be punished. So it's this idea that there is a bigger plan afoot. And just because God is enabling or using the Babylonian empire to do his will here, he's manipulating their evil to accomplish a good purpose. It doesn't mean that that evil is going to be unpunished. So, so there is a system of justice that is longer and bigger than what we as humans naturally focus on. Because we've got like, what, 80 to 100 years here on earth. And in the ancient days, a lot of times a lot younger than that. So we have a very limited perspective. And so we tend to focus on the issues that we're dealing with right now, which is completely understandable. But God is saying there is a bigger picture when you zoom out, there's a bigger picture that's going on and that's my domain. I'm, I'm playing a larger game here and evil is not going to go unpunished. It's not going to go unpunished. Um, and that's driven home by the very last verse of chapter two that says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. So all of this is going on, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So again, this idea that God is the ultimate judge and he's not going to allow evil, uh, even though it looks like it right now, it looks like evil has the advantage. It looks like evil is, is, is winning and God is rewarding it, but he's not actually rewarding it. He's actually allowing evil to reap, like put punishment onto itself. Um, and, and again, Habakkuk's response to this is really interesting in, in, um, after all of this, in Habakkuk 3 verse 16, Habakkuk says this, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who have invaded us. So he's he's accepted here that God is judge. Um, but there is still hope for the immediate day. Habakkuk's going to have to live through this, but there is still hope for his immediate lifespan. In verse 19, he says, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. So essentially there's this ability for Habakkuk to survive uh, based off of God's mercy and based off of Habakkuk's posture towards God. So trying to live towards God in righteousness. So I'm not sure if that's, exactly what this viewer question was was hoping the answer was going to be but this is the answer that habakkuk gives us well it's a bible question so it's actually quite poignant like, yeah. i think you've really hit the, uh, the nail on the head because it's rather than getting into to deep philosophical realms it's what habakkuk's talking about right mm -hmm. so i think he did a good job there also the th other things to keep in mind um we often think about oh god's using evil against you know 
against a good person or something. It's, oh, yeah, no. Yeah, that's not what's happening. He was punishing right. Judah's evil. Yeah, exactly. So using God's- something more evil. And there's an irony in that where they were, and, and it's pointed out in the other prophets, yeah. the irony of that is that the people of God had traded God for other gods and for other nations rather than making relying on their alliance with God. Right. They were making alliances with Babylon. Right. They were making alliances with Assyria. They were making, and so the, the irony in that is God goes, okay, now you're going to know what it's like to serve these other people. That's right. Rather than me. That's right. So. Yeah, no, and I, I think um, that's good. And to, to give some perspective on this, so just even getting to the question of why does God use evil to accomplish his plans, even in a general sense, it's like what we're saying that God is used, is permitting evil to do what it's already going to do, yeah. but he's going to push it in a way that it has some sort of purpose. Yeah. In other words, evil will just conquer and want to be evil for the sake of being evil and want to control everything. Yeah. But God's actually going to be like, okay, well, you're going to go that direction anyway. Yeah. I'm going to, you know, uh, oversee the situation so that it actually works out to a good end. Yeah. And that's something that's way more comforting because if you know, people are going to be evil regardless. Yes. Right? And it's like, okay, given their free will, then God is simply using that to accomplish something good out of it. Yes. And if you know that that's behind the scenes, that's a very comforting thought. Well, and even even from the concept of, and this is taking it, I know it's not exactly the question, but taking it even a step further back, I'm really thankful that God doesn't require things to be completely righteous before he deems it worthy to intervene and worthy to interact and worthy to use because none of us would be able to accomplish that, right? And we see, I mean, Christ, Christ becomes our righteousness. So on that side, like, Christ is our righteousness, and that is why God, like God, can use us in a different way now on the side of the cross. But if you think about it, like when when you go back into the Old Testament, we see human evil, and and God makes a way to deal with that, even in His people, even in those who are faithful to follow Him, even in people like Habakkuk. Right? No one is without sin. No one is without evil. Um, but but God doesn't see that and go, oh well, I guess I can't use it. Oh, I right. guess that I guess oh, that's gone. You know, he he. We see him actively working with people who have a very dark side. Yes. Right. Yeah. And and not always for judgment. A lot of times for their own good. The judgment comes when the evil has been allowed to fester so much and has been completely accepted by the person, and the person has given themselves over to that evil. Right. Oh, never can ever. Yeah. Right. And then eventually he repents and he comes too. Yep. And and I mean Babylon as a whole in Habakkuk. There's some really interesting descriptions of just how evil um there's some really interesting even from a human emotional perspective how evil babylon is so it's definitely worth a read cool yeah let me ask you the next question this one is of your question okay okay it's from peter what does habakkuk mean when he says that god came from taman and the holy one came from mount paran how can god come from somewhere right okay okay so this is a prayer of Habakkuk. So Habakkuk is saying this of God. Right. Uh, I'll just read you three verses one to three because three is where that right. um, Teman and Mount Paran comes from. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. 
His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. So Habakkuk has given us a clue here to what he's talking about. He says, back in verse two, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. So he's heard stories of the miracle, uh, miracles of God and how God moves. And he's asking God to revive those works now. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So he's referring back to something. Then he moves into the actual sighting of what he's thinking about in his prayer. God coming from Teman and... God coming from Mount Paran. So what is he talking about? He is talking about the time period of the wilderness wandering, uh, the time period after the Exodus. So if we jump back to Numbers, it's a new Bible, it's got sticky pages. I'm still getting used to it. If we jump back to Numbers 13, um, this is when this is when uh, the, they, the people have come from Mount Sinai and they're camped outside of the promised land and Moses sends in spies. Well, the area that they are camped in, in Numbers 13, is the wilderness of Paran. Uh, specifically, they're staying at the city of Kadesh within the wilderness of Paran. So we see that in um, Numbers 13, verse 3. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran. Uh, and then I think it's down in 26. Yeah. In 26, we learn specifically they're staying at the city of Kadesh. And when they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. So Paran is a place. Uh, and then we jump over to, this one's actually even more instructive. I believe it's Deuteronomy. I wrote myself, yeah, wrote myself a note here so I would remember exactly where it was and wouldn't have to go fishing for it. Deuteronomy chapter 33. All right, so this is when Moses is blessing the people of Israel before he dies. Um, and this is what Moses says. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. Okay, so you caught that, right? He came from Sinai, he dawned from Seir, he shone forth from Mount Paran. So what this is talking about, what Moses is talking about here in Deuteronomy and what um, Habakkuk is talking about is places where the children of God, the Israelites camped and the presence of God met with them. So this was a gathering of God's people before they went out on a mission that God had given them and God appeared to them. So in this way, we can say God, Moses can say God came from Sinai, whereas his presence was manifest at Mount Sinai. Um, at Mount Seir, you, you go back and you look when they were in the Edomite territory, which is Mount Seir. Uh, there's some really integral battles that happened there and, and moments where God interacted. So does God literally is God, at, you know, contained within a, a physical structure, which which he he came down Mount Sinai and went with the Israelites? No, 
but it can be said in in more of like a, a metaphorical esoteric way that the, that the presence of God met with the people and went with them on their mission. And so I, I know this is a long-winded no, way of good. talking about it, but Habakkuk is remembering these things from early in Israel's history, and he's imploring God to do that now. And I think it's really interesting how, remember, in Habakkuk 3, he says, uh, you know, have mercy in your wrath. When you look at the time period of the wilderness wandering, there was wrath of God, but there was also mercy because God just, God could have at that point abandoned the people because they fell so quickly into idolatry, but he didn't, he worked with them anyway. So we see Habakkuk employing this language. So it's not as if, again, the physical, God is a physical uh, being or physical person that he is contained in, a, in, a, in an area like a human being and, and, and goes with Israel. No, but it can be said that the presence of God was with Israel in a special way at these places as they went out on their mission. And that's what Habakkuk is referring to. That's good. I have nothing to really add in. I think what's important too is just to remember like the complexity of this language itself. Yeah. What people often take for granted. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, obviously God doesn't come from a, a geographic location. Yeah, and, yeah. and I mean, <laughs> even, when we, even when we pray today, I often pray when I'm going somewhere, whether it's going on a speaking engagement or just going out somewhere and I'm, 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 I'm anxious or I'm nervous, I ask God, go with me. And I know that God is everywhere. Right. But when I'm saying God, go with me, it's not, it's not, what, it, what is it that I'm asking? I'm not asking that, um, you know, that I, it's not me not acknowledging that God is omnipresent. I'm asking God to be with me in a special way. Well, His presence to be with me in a special way. Right. Um, and, uh, yes. And uh, that's really important because I know we have the Holy Spirit, right? But there's, uh, which is obviously God is going with you, but there is a difference to this. So if you think, look at it in the greater context, like God is obviously omnipresent, but then God also says, it means he's everywhere and anywhere at all times. Mm -hmm. Then God is also, when two or more gather my name, I will be among them. Yeah. So then he's also locally present. Yeah. But then also there's the Holy Spirit. So he's also personally present. Mm -hmm. So you see this also in the Old Testament where you have, uh, like a basically like a targeting system, if you will, of like d degrees of God's presence, where you have the world, then you have Israelite, like the actual Holy Land, mm -hmm. then you have the camp and the people and the culture of Israel, then you have the tabernacle, right in the outer court, then you have inside the tabernacle the holy place, then you have the holy of holies, and mm -hmm. it just keeps getting basically more and more present, mm -hmm. more and more holy. Mm -hmm. um, so you still have that that same that same thing applies. So it's not like by saying, come with me, Lord, and be present, Lord, it's somehow rejecting also the Holy Spirit's presence, right? right? right. It's also not rejecting omni his omnipresence. Mm -hmm. It's not none of that. It's just, you know, it's just, it's something that's involved with how God operates in his presence. Anyways, it's really complex. And I don't think it's kind of off topic. So how about I get to the next question? <laughs> sure. We're <laughs> yeah. cruising through yeah. these minor prophets. All right. It's exciting. We're done with Habakkuk. Yes. Yes. Zephaniah. Zephaniah. Chapter 2, verse 11. Okay. Okay. It's a Bible question. When did Moab and Ammon worship the Lord? When did this happen? Right. Because as far as we can tell, well, it they were destroyed. never happened. They were destroyed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, right, so ahead. I think this is actually, I think this is actually just a misinterpretation of Zephaniah 2, verse 11. Um, let me go to it. Zephaniah 2... Okay, I'm going to start in verse 8. Zephaniah 2, verse 8, and we'll go to 11, which is where this viewer question is coming from. So, I have heard the taunts of Moab 
and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. Uh, and this is the verse in question. The Lord will be awesome against them for he will famish all the gods of the earth and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. So rather than it being the physical people in that verse, I don't know if you caught it, rather than it being the physical people that is bowing down, it's the lands and the gods. It's the gods of those lands who are forced to bow before God. Let me read that one more time. At least that's how I understand it. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. So this is less of um, a, a human being active worship of God. Right. And, uh, and what it is, is it's this surrendering to God, this, this being defeated. Every knee will bow. defeated by God. Right. Yes, it's not like they're like, oh, the God of Israel is amazing. And they and there's this conversion. It's no, God has destroyed their nation. And in so the gods who are responsible for the land, right? The gods that the gods in the ancient world in ancient Mesopotamia, they were territorial. So, uh, and even some of this seeped into how ancient Israel and ancient Judah worshiped God, which is interesting, but another story for another day. So these gods were territorial and they were seen to have authority over the land. So when the scripture says he will famish all the gods of the earth and to him shall bow down each in its place, all the lands of the nations, we see this, this humbling of the foreign gods by the destruction of their lands. So the gods are bowing to God in defeat. Um, they have been forced to surrender to right. God. So when did Moab, Moab and Ammon worship the Lord? The people, like the nations as a whole, did not, that I am aware of, uh, but they were destroyed. Uh, and and so this prophecy is fulfilled in, in terms of, from my understanding, where the, the gods of the Moab, the gods of the Moabites and the gods of the Ammonites were forced to, they were defeated mm. by God. That's good. Yeah. I think that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think you totally nailed it. It's not actually the people getting together and making worship music. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not even them just acknowledging the God of Israel. It's literally, it's the destruction of the yes. land. Yeah. Humbling the gods of the land who yes. had authority over it, believed to have authority. Beautiful. Over it. I think okay. that's it. Yeah. Flipping the script, I'm going to ask you a question, sure. Matlock. Okay. okay. Viewer question from Matlock. This is from Matt. Is it wrong to be wealthy and live in a nice home? And this is coming from specifically Haggai <coughs> chapter 1, verse 4. So that's the scripture that right. inspired this question. Okay. Is it wrong to be wealthy and live in a nice home based off of Haggai 1, verse 4? Let me actually get Haggai up. Yeah, I have it if you want. Yeah, I want to read yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, 
Haggai 1 verse 4. All right, so the context of Haggai is that God is getting the people to back to the mission of building the temple in Jerusalem. So the exiles, uh, the Babylonian exiles have been allowed to return to Jerusalem, but they have not yet built the temple, even though that was their primary objective. So verse four says, this is a quote from God. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Um, now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much. Okay, and it, it goes on. But I guess that, right. that verse four is, right. is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? All right, so there's, there's the context of what this is actually saying. Mm -hmm. And then there's the question itself in modern context. Right. Okay, so in modern context, is it wealthy to live in a nice home? Right? Is it like wrong to do that? Well, if it is, then everyone in the West is <laughs> totally messed because we're living like princes compared to people who were living even 150 years ago. You see what I'm saying? Even 100 years ago. Um, because the Industrial Revolution has just changed things. So ha being wealthy and having these things doesn't necessitate um, that you've done something wrong. In fact, it even says in Deuteronomy that these things come as a blessing, but don't misuse it essentially. And that often happens is that through the blessing, people misuse it because of sin. And then they, they become spoiled through, through their blessings. Um, so is it wrong to be wealthy and live in a nice home? The, I, no, it's not objectively wrong. Um, can things go wrong? Of course. So the more you have, the more responsibilities you have to deal with. And the less you deal with those intricate and detailed responsibilities, the more, the more likely things are to go wrong. Um, and the more wealth you have, right, changes the status in some people's minds. So there's, there's a lot there that, that you have to parse out. Um, so yeah, it's not objectively wrong. Um, in this case, uh, uh, when it says in verse four, is it a time for you, you yourselves to dwell in the paneled houses while well, this house lies in ruins? Uh, it's not really dealing with houses per se. It's dealing with like the house of Israel, right? The house of the, t the temple. Uh, sorry. So go ahead. What, sorry. What, what did you say that the... Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Well, the house lies in, well, well this, this house, house lies, lies in, in ruins. ruins. Right. So basically he's creating a contrast. Yeah. Right. Between, between what they've focused on building. Right. Yes. Exactly. So it's not, so it's not quite the same thing mm -hmm. as what we have. It's not really about having nice things, nice houses. Right. Um, because yes, they were having nice houses. Like right. they were paneling their houses. So it was them focusing on, but the idea was the problem wasn't inherently them focusing on building their houses. It was that they had not focused on building God's house first because that was what God That's had right. told them to do. Right. So right? The, so the fo the focus was on not on Israel. Yeah. Not on the covenant. Not on the temple. It's not what the focus the focus mm -hmm. was on mm -hmm. themselves. It was not about the houses per se. Right. It's not about their houses per se. Is what I was getting at. Right. So, um, so that would be that. So again, it's like, but that can come from. Once again, focusing on wealth. So it's a misapplication. Is it wrong to have wealth to live in a nice home? No. Is it wrong to be focused on those things above God? Yes. Because, you know, what does is, what is the Bible teach? That everything you own, all of your strength, your resources, everything you have belongs to God. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, it's God's already. You have to focus on what's God's. Focus on God. And then through that, you know, if, you, if it's the other way around, then yes, there's, there's a problem. So I think that's the that's the quick answer. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I mean, also add added to that, it's not. So how do we follow God? It is impossible to follow God 
and not be actively helping others where you're able to help others. That's an impossible thing. And I mean, we learn that in Isaiah 58, where, where God is indicting the people of Israel and Judah for, for being well off and being very pious, but being so selfish that they're not helping anyone else. They're just focused on their piety and they're very comfortable and they're very well off. To love God is to care about people that he has created. God makes it rain on the just and the unjust. God cares about the the physical well-being of I mean there's a reason why in the in the Mosaic law he calls himself the defender of the oppressed, the fatherless, the widow, the foreigner among those uh, among the people. Those three people the the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner, they are the people who are most at risk in a patriarchal society. So God was saying, take care of them because I, the buck stops with me, I am their authority. And if you don't take care of them, you will be answering to me, right? So I think that's the only caveat that that continues on. Because love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, mm. right? So there's this spending yourself on behalf of God and others. There is an active part to loving God, and it's not just about how you choose to live your life, morally speaking. It is about how you choose to live your life, morally speaking. We have an obligation to live according to the Spirit of God, according to, to order our lives according to God's morality, but we also have an obligation to spend ourselves on the behalf of the hungry and the oppressed. So, I mean, when you look at Isaiah 58, Jesus, God says in 58 verse 6, is not this the fast that I choose? Because the people are, are pious. They're being very pious, but they're not applying their religion. Is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see him naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. So there's both. You have to organize your life morally with God and you also have to spend yourself on behalf of other people. Yeah. Right? So with that caveat, it's not wrong to be wealthy and live in a nice home, but are you doing so at the expense of others? Are you actively helping out those less fortunate than you? Because you should be if you're a Christ follower. Yes. Because God cares about those people. You should care about those people. And if you don't care about those people, that's something that you have to deal with with God. Because you need to. You need to be caring. Right. That would be my caveat. Okay. That. Well, that's a good caveat. Because if you look at like, there's no temple. We are at the temple. So you take care of the temple. The, the, the principle, the, the principle still applies mm -hmm. in the Christian sense, right? Mm -hmm. This is where the new the house of the Lord. Yeah. So 
Um, yeah, well, and I mean, just even, but, but the question apart from the direct context of Haggai. Yes, yes in Haggai, he's not necessarily indicting them because of their nice houses. He's indicting them because they're focused on the wrong thing. They, yes. They had an obligation to build the temple because God gave them that directly in a prophecy. They yes. had to do that, right? It was a command. But in general, is I was kind yes. of trying to answer no, also I, I, in I hear general. Well, I, I it's agree not with wrong, that. but there's yeah. caveat. Yeah, that. yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so um, let's do Zechariah. Verse, let's do it. Bible let's questions. Do the question. <laughs> Bible questions. Zechariah uh, chapter 3, verse 10. Okay. Who was Joshua in Zechariah? Now, just a little side note here that if we recall in Ezekiel, if everyone remembers this, that there would be the sons of Zadok would come in the priest. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, that was Ezekiel 44, verse 13. And here we have a son of Zadok. Yeah. Joshua. Yeah. So so Joshua is the high priest at the time when the so the exiles have returned to Jerusalem. They have they're rebuilding the temple and Joshua's the guy. Joshua's the right. high priest who comes back from exile to be the high priest. And Zechariah 3 is so interesting because it's this vision this vision of Zechariah that God gives him in which he sees Joshua, the high priest, receiving clean clothes from God. So it's this, again, this 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 theme of human righteousness is nothing but dirty rags. And it's God's righteousness only that can clothe, clothe us, his forgiveness that can clothe us, clothe us. Um, and in Zechariah 3, anyway, we've got we've got this really interesting prophecy, I believe, of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, who would be both high priest and king, right? Descendant of David, but also a high priest in the line of Melchizedek, just meaning that he's not a Levitical priest. Um, but even like right in Zechariah 3, it says that Joshua and his friends who are there are a sign. It's not actually talking about them. It's, it's a sign of the Messiah. Yes. But anyway, so Joshua is was the was the the in the lineage of the priest, and he was the high priest when the people came back from the Babylonian exile. You can read about him. I wrote down a couple of references. Haggai one verse one. Um, he is mentioned as coming back and being the high priest. Uh, he's also mentioned in Ezra and Nehemiah, specifically Ezra 2. But in Ezra, his his name takes on a slightly different form where it's Jeshua rather than Joshua. So, I mean, we're looking at English transliterations of the Hebrew here. Uh, so there's a few different few yeah. different versions of the name Joshua, but... It's also the name of Jesus, right? Because yeah. Jesus is the Greek version of Joshua. Yeah. Right. So, and do you think that in this one that uh, Joshua is a parallel to the Messiah? Yes. Yes, yeah, very clear, right? Yes. He's the branch and all these things. I do I do believe. Right. Um, I think it's also interesting uh, that uh, Ezekiel, talking about the rebuilding of the temple, mm-hmm. and, and the, from 40 to 48, those chapters, talks about the sons of Zadok, the ones who are going to reestablish it. Yep. And then, lo and behold, Joshua, yep. son of Zadok, comes in and helps reestablish the new temple. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really interesting. And then also that becomes a parallel for Christ being, because he gets inaugurated as, as a prince, right? Yep. And then he becomes this priest prince. Yes. Which is something that you also see in, in Ezekiel. Yes. This priest prince who's giving atonement for people and for himself and the, the people. Anyways, really interesting stuff. Really interesting. So I think that that nails Are you happy with that? Happy with that I think answer? so. I don't see what else we need to talk about. Okay. We right. need to talk about the next question, though, before the big question. I have a okay. question for you. Okay. Go ahead. Zachariah 6. Right. Right? Oh, with right. The, with these right. chariots. <coughs> right. Zechariah 6, 1 to 8. This is a Bible question. 
does Zachariah 618 parallel Revelation 618? It's basically what I'm going to ask you. Are the four right. horsemen in Zechariah 6 the same horsemen as in well, Revelation 6? Clearly, they're not the same. They're not the same. No, but no. is there a parallel? Right. There is a parallel. Is there a relationship is the real question. Because we've got chariots yes. in Zechariah 6. So let's talk about some similarities. Okay, so yeah, because chariots are multiple horses, and there's one horseman. It's just, there's just one horse. But the similarities are, okay, that they all are red, black, and white horses. But instead of a pale horse, in, uh, which you have in Revelation, mm -hmm. who's death in Hades, you have a dappled horse. Yeah. Right? Which is, which is similar to pale. Very similar. Very similar. Yeah. I think that's what they're going for. So very similar. But the order is also different. So in the chariots that are mentioned in um, Zechariah, it goes red, black, white, dappled. Then in the horsemen in Revelation, it goes white, red, black, uh, pale. So the orders between uh, red, white, and black are uh, switched around a bit. Uh, now, the difference, they are different even in their what they're doing. So it seems like the chariots are on patrol to judge. They're going to and fro the world, which is different when you have in the horsemen. They're, they're actually to judge. Um, now, there is this, there are other things you connect here. I don't want to get too deep into Revelation here. But um, there are other parallels because the judgment for the Revelation is to kill by the sword, through pestilence, famine, and by beasts. Um, and that doesn't seem to be, from what I recall, I haven't read Zechariah, what's happening here. They're going to the north, to the south, to the east, and the west, basically. And they're just patrolling over mm -hmm. the world. So it's kind of like a symbol. Zechariah, you're saying. In Zechariah. And then, and then there's a symbol of um, God's defeat over his enemies in the north as yes. well. Because um, in verse 8, it says, Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Right. And like, and, and chariots in, in the ancient world, in the time period when Zechariah is recording this, chariots are a, a the symbol of military might, like the symbol of military power. So they weren't the only thing that went into an actual military, but if you were going to boil it down to a symbol, yes. it's a chariot. Yeah. It's a chariot with its horses. That is the symbol of military might and military power. So we've got these symbols of God's power going out to the four the four winds of the earth. So that means that nowhere on earth can escape the power of God. Right. Right? It, he is he is he is um this military God's military strength is going throughout the whole world. Yes. You're he right. he has he has the ultimate power no matter what it looks like, he has the ultimate power. In this study, I'm going to I'm because we shouldn't get into it for too long. Um, but I'm going to recommend verses for you guys to read if people are interested. Sure, that's a good idea. So Ezekiel verse, uh, chapter 14, verses 12 to 23, deals with something similar to what you have in Revelation 6. And then also Deuteronomy 32, um, verses 23 to 25. So those have some interesting parallels as well with um, what you see in Revelation. What I also think is interesting is that this is totally just for our, to our sake. It's Revelation 6, 1 to 8. It's also Zechariah 6, 1 to 8. Mm -hmm. Very fun parallel, but it means nothing. But it's just fun parallel. Anyways, so read Ezekiel, read Deuteronomy, those two places. And you can kind of see there's a relationship there that is built in, but it's not, once again, is it the same? No. Is it a relationship? Yes. Um, has to do with judgment and patrolling and God's strength over the nations and stuff like that, over the, and over the, the so-called gods um, and stuff like that. And I think that here... I think that's it. Because we could talk about that. If we want to get deep into something, you can. But then you're getting off the top. The I question know. Itself. It's true. So let's go to the big question. The big question. Mark C's question. <laughs> if fighting was okay in the Old Testament, then is it okay to fight for our rights now? All right, Corey. 
What do you think? You wrote something down earlier. Oh yeah, I, I haven't. I that uh, I'm not ready to talk about what I wrote down. But <laughs> let's, we can we can talk about this question. Okay. All right. Um, I think I'm trying to I'm trying to absorb this question. I'm trying to digest this question. I'm right. trying to take this question from the right angle because there's a lot of things that I think when I initially read the question, which is what kind of fighting do you mean? Right. That's the first question that I mean because. What fighting do you mean in the Old Testament if fighting was okay? What what fighting was okay? Do you mean the conquest of Canaan? Do you mean, or do you just mean, fight, like, yeah. do you just mean like the Babylonians taking over Israel? Like, or do you just mean fighting? Because murder was still David wrong. and Goliath. David and Goliath, let's say. That's warfare, though. That's like that's an enemy right. coming into Israel saying, I'm going to take Israel over. So there's right. a defense there that's going on. The, so... So, so there is, is it okay to fight for our rights now? Do you mean like as a? Do you mean in the West? At, are you are you tapping so, into the political space in the West where we feel like Christianity is beginning to be outlawed? Certain elements of is you do you see what I'm saying? There is no, I'm struggling okay. with how to answer this okay. question because I want clarification. There is on the question. no one to one parallel between our current fighting for our rights today. Yeah. For our democratic rights and right to free speech, all these things, and what you have in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So the question is, is there precedent? I'm assuming this is what the, for anywhere in the text where it's like someone even hiding the baby Joe Ash, or do you see what I'm saying? Just to to anything, any type of like way to preserve what's right. Um, any type of I, let's make it broad, just sort of fighting, like like. Make it not just physical fighting, but just like fighting it back against in some sort of way. Um, anyway, to preserve what's right in light of what's going on right now, like with, you know, in Israel, tons of false prophets going around. Um, is it is it wrong to verbally speak against these, even verbal, like verbal fighting? Um, and so it's like I, I'm trying to. I, I know I hear what you're saying. I'm trying to broaden this out. Because there's, there's, there's two different versions. You have verbal and you have physical in terms of fighting. Um, so is it okay? Um, if fighting was okay in the, in the, in the Old Testament, well, it's like, well, it wasn't actually okay. Let's answer no. that. No. So it wasn't actually okay. But there, um, there, was, were, there were very distinct times where God commanded yes. and, violence. And that's what we're going to go on. Because you, I think that's the way to go on this but even yeah. so, yeah. E even so, in the Old Testament, um, in the time period of the kings, godly kings would inquire of God through the prophets and the priests yeah. before they went to warfare. Because some of them actively went on conquest to reestablish the borders of Judah and right. Israel. Sometimes there was a civil war between Israel and Judah and the prophets of God actually interceded. Right. There was a time when... Um, when um, a, a northern Israelite king came and destroyed a large chunk of Jerusalem and took exiles back with him, okay. his own flesh and blood, and a prophet interfered and said, what are you doing? Stop this. Right. And to the king's credit, he let the exiles go. Right. But it wasn't as if they just had <coughs> some sort of get out of trouble free card. Here, you can just, you can just kill everybody willy-nilly. Right. That that wasn't the thing. It's not like I mean. I think what makes it difficult. The question is, 
then is it okay to fight for our rights? Because it goes, is it okay to fight in the Old Testament? Because there's no one-to-one -one parallel. Like, you have reforms, like Josiah's reforms, where they're taking down the high places and these false worship centers, right? Um, you, could, you could argue that maybe that's what he's referring to, um, that things like this was, if this, you know, if America and Canada were Christian nations, mm -hmm. or, if, or at least founded by Christians, should we take similar precedents from found in the Old Testament and apply it for our rights right now because everyone else is deviating from the original mandate that Canada and the United States were founded on. Um, mm -hmm. But you, you see what I'm saying? I'm trying to figure out how to, how to relate these two. Reformed is one way you could, you could look at it. Are we supposed to reform? Um, in terms of just fighting, let's, let's just knock out the easy one. Physical fighting itself. Is it okay... Okay, was physical fighting okay in the Old Testament? It's like, well... Yes and no. Yes and no. It depends if God sanctioned it or not. God's like, you well, must do this. If you were... Well, and even, like, it, like yet. Yeah. And we don't mean... Okay. They were able to defend... <laughs> such an ambiguous question. <laughs> I know, I'm like, Matt, well, yeah. that's not helpful to me. Okay. Like, was violence okay in the Old Testament? Yes and no. I mean, you, yeah. you, look, you look at that murder was still a moral sin yeah. in the Old Testament. Yes. It still no. was. No, uh, yes, of course. They, you could be charged for... I mean, when you look at, when you look at David... Um, he, he punished people for crimes that were, he, okay, um, Joab, David's army commander, Joab, and nephew, Joab. Joab murdered a couple people, but in Joab's mind, it was in a time of war. And so he claimed it was in war that he killed those people. David disagreed. Right. David said, no, I don't think that's true. I think you're guilty of murder. And Job said, no, that's not true. It was in a time of warfare. And so David, during his life, allowed Joab to live, but then passed on the burden to Solomon and said, you need to bring judgment against your cousin Joab. Right. And Solomon had him executed. Okay. So what that tells us, it doesn't tell us who was right. God is the ultimate judge of Joab. And that's actually one of the reasons why I really like Joab as a historical character, because what did Joab do when Solomon put out an execution order for him? He went into the temple of God and grabbed onto the horns of the altar as if to say, God is my judge. He knew he was going to die. Right. But he wanted to make a final stand where he really believed that, he was, that it was in a time of warfare and he grabbed the horns of the altar. God will be my judge. He was throwing himself morally before the ultimate judge. What this tells us is that even in this time, this wild time period of David, where it just seems like everyone's killing everyone and there's warfare everywhere, they still believed that there was moral killing and immoral killing, which is going on. Right. So you can't just say, you can't just look at the Old Testament and say, it, it was, everything was good to go. <laughs> you were just good to go. Like, boys no. being boys. Yeah. No. There is still. Hey, hey, and women yeah. being women. Like, JL, man, with that tent peg. Yeah. She murdered some people. At least one. Well, okay, so. Killed, I should say, because so, it was warfare. So the question is, if fighting is okay in the Old Testament, if it is, mm -hmm. then is it okay to fight for our rights now? So, yeah. And the problem is, this is such a nuanced Question, I don't think because it just it ultimately depends. Here's the here's the problem with the question though, from from my perspective. Right. I don't think we look to the Old Testament of the Bible to justify defending our rights as human beings. Okay. I don't think we do that. Right, but as the, I don't think we need to but do that. The question could just be if fighting is okay. Mm -hmm. I know it says was, so it's, it makes it more difficult. But if fighting is okay, so if it's not okay, if it just depends, 
Is it okay? The question is then, can it, can we just fight for our rights now? I know it depends. It depends on what those, right? So can we fight for our rights now, even though fighting for our rights, for, sorry, fighting in the Old Testament was dependent on okay. when it was good time to fight or not? But again, I say, what do you mean by rights? And what do you mean by fighting okay. for our rights? Because there is an appropriate way to represent Christ right. while pushing back on the cultural, what have become the cultural norms of our day, which are not okay. So I think, I think a good way of looking at this is too, is reforms. In the Old Testament, there were reforms made by Josiah and other kings. Yeah. Like I already said this, tear down the high places, tear down the, the, the worship, the shrines, all these things, okay? That would be... That would be... The closest parallel to that would be church reforms. Well, it's happening throughout the everywhere else. Like, it's one religion but, going against but, another religion, and you're tearing down their worship centers. the people of God. It was within the people of God. Yes. It was, it was the people of God building those worship centers, not pagan peoples, not foreign peoples. So Hezekiah went into Israel and Judah. He didn't go into Moab. Yes. He didn't go into Edom. He didn't go into uh, to Aram. He focused on Israel and Judah, where his right. people were, so, and he took down the pagan okay, altars so that they were. This gentleman, I'm assuming, lives in America, is like or Canada. Is like we were Christian nations, but we're not. Okay, we were grounded in Christian people. Okay, right. Our, the parliament even has revelation on it. The leaves of the nation, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. will be healing for the nations. The leaves will be healings for the nations. So my point here is that the uh, Christians were building these societies. The Christian mindset, the Christian culture, we're building these societies. So the question then becomes, given that, is it okay to fight for our rights? And what to what extent is it okay? Yeah, so I don't think that that's a... I don't think that, so, that we just... I don't think we need to justify pushing back on society's norms by saying, we were all Christian okay. once, because I don't, I don't buy that we were all Christian once. Um... But I, I do understand where you're coming from. I understand I, I'm what you're trying saying. to make this question actually have, rather than nitpick at the, how the question's formed. I'm, try, I'm I was trying gonna... to actually have an answer. <laughs> no, I think we still can. Something that's tangible. Right. I think we still okay. can. Okay. All right. So, okay. Mike, okay. It's okay. It just really just depends for fighting for your rights now. Really, 100% depends. Are you going to go out there to the street and just like... Beat people up? Beat, it's, well, no. You shouldn't do that. Or you have to have a Christian witness. Mm -hmm. So if you have a... Christ-like witness as you move forward in these things. Can you prover like proverbially fight? Where it's like you're fighting the good fight, as Paul calls it, right? Well, yeah, you can fight the good fight for your rights, and right? You're given, we're democratic. Like, we live but, in a society that you're allowed to do these. Fight, hold on. Fight the good fight is in reference to living your life as a, as a Christ follower. Yes. Not, as, not fight the good fight as in reforming the government. Okay, so... Paul was focused on... I'm just trying to be. I'm just trying to be crystal clear here that the first priority of the Christian life is to live for God and spread the gospel, yes. spread the good news of the kingdom. Yes. I'm not saying that. The, I what I am not saying is that there is not a place for pushback and reform of our government structures. I'm not saying. Okay, that. so that's what I'm, I'm not saying. saying no. I think there is. But a what place I for that. am saying is that our first priority has to be. To to, to represent Christ appropriately in our lives, morally and even intellectually, knowing what we believe, knowing okay. what God said, knowing what Christ said, and doing that first. Because what we learn from all of Christian history, but especially these first few generations of Christians, is that it is more than possible 
to be an effective Christian witness and to grow the kingdom of God in an amazing way in a very unfriendly environment, in an environment that will kill you for your Christian beliefs. Right. Because Paul himself killed for his Christian beliefs. Peter himself killed for his Christian beliefs. Right. Many other Christians killed for their Christian beliefs. And, and But they weren't focusing on reforming the government. They were focused on building the kingdom of God. Again, I am not saying there is not a place for reforming the government. But what I am saying is let's not make politics religion. Let's not make politics our main our, our main focus as the church as a whole. Well, we have to keep the main things the main things and the peripheral things the peripheral things. That's why it, like, it can be really disturbing when we begin to mix mix politics in with with our Christianity because then we begin to look, I think, I think the danger is then looking at you mean, political activists and political leaders with more authority so than they should clear, have you, in our lives. You, to be clear, you don't mean that there isn't overlap. You mean that to mix it completely, like yeah. a smoothie, like there is no difference. Yeah, but okay. we have to be really careful who we are giving our are intentional and unintentional respect to. Because there are people that I agree with politically that I do not believe represent Jesus Christ at all. Right. And they don't, they, they might believe. Right. Maybe. But I have to be really careful who I'm listening to and who I'm giving priority to in my life. Right. Because they're going to have priorities that should not be my first priority. Okay, so... We had to be really let's careful. About, okay. we, we in the West we tend to make ourselves heroes. Yeah. And let's just make sure that our heroes aren't political heroes. Okay, so let's go back a little bit, tether it back to the question. Okay, because <laughs> I'm trying, really trying to come up with some something. Something. Okay, so um, is it okay to fight for our rights, like abortion? Because because as an example, okay, because right now that's, you know, it's a hot thing. You mean the rights of the, do you mean the rights of the unborn? Well, yes, because that's, that's a, your religious position determines whether that's right or wrong, essentially. Mm -hmm. So, I so th that would be a right to fight for. You'd be like, well, this is an actual person. Like, right, mm -hmm. abortion is wrong, mm -hmm. right? There's something to be said for, for like Christian organizations not having to pay into that. What do you mean, Sorry. Well, I know that was a big issue in the state. It's completely different here in Canada. We don't have choices. Right. But in in the states, uh, when it when it came to funding, right, or providing funding for employees, for example, if you're a Christian employer, there's there's a case that can be made for obviously pushing back and not and not being actively involved in that. Right. So therefore, you're fighting for your rights. Essentially, you're pushing yeah. back. Right. So it depends yeah. on how what degree you mean by fight. Yep. Right. Right. You're not going to kill somebody. I think that's fair. Okay, don't kill somebody, but you're allowed to push back and fight to a, to a certain degree. And regardless, regardless of what right it is you're fighting for, our priority still has to be to represent Christ in that. Yes. So we still have to, we are not Christ. So we have to be really careful that our emotions don't rule us, that we're not a slave to our emotions and that I mean, we're not going to be perfect, but that, that is a real temptation and a real danger to just have unbridled rage and un inappropriate hatred. Know who it is that you're fighting. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but spiritual principalities, right? When we, when we hop into Galatians so there. So there we go. Okay, so the answer is yes, under a caveat, that you're, you're fighting against, not against flesh and blood, but against 
powers, uh, powers and principalities and the dark forces of this world and the spiritual evils that are here. So if that's yeah. the mindset, then if fighting was okay in the Old Testament, which it wasn't depending, then is it okay to fight for rights now? So yes, spiritually it is. It's 100% okay to fight spiritually. Um, but it's like, how far do you extend that physically? And, is the question. But that's a nuanced question. And and we have no choice but to bathe all of this in prayer. Like, even David, he wrote the book of Psalms. He's praying about this all the time. Right? If, if we're just fighting for our rights and neglecting our prayer life and neglecting our, we're doing it wrong. Well, we're doing it yes, wrong. Yes. And we may have a measure of success, but the likelihood of us messing up our own morality and, and, and not being an appropriate witness to others and potentially screwing up their vision of who God is, is very great if we are neglecting our prayer life right. and, 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 our, and our study of the scripture. And, and li- those moments where you're listening to God and you're really, it's just, there's so many temptations for us to be evil. So many. Right. Right. Um, without getting to too much about where this can go, about, all right, because I think in a roundabout way, we've kind of answered this way. Really roundabout. Like, really roundabout. We've discussed way. it. We've discussed Less it. Less than answered. Right. We've discussed um, it. <laughs> there is value in there being political rights that are Christians so for people who are not Christian. Definitely value. There's totally yeah. value. When we say abortion is wrong, mm-hmm. right? And someone um, keeps their child and doesn't you know, kill the child, mm-hmm. especially in Canada where you can have, you know, you can have abortion even when the child comes out. Yep. You can have, uh, right? That's terrible. Yeah, as that's long a, as it's still partially attached. in the birth canal. Right. Yeah. And that's like, okay, that's, that's murder. It's just murder. So that's murder the whole way through. But yes, yes it's, it's like, like how, yeah, it is, e- but how can even, even people who are, not Christian at all. How can they see that right. as anything else? But, I but have no idea. There's a benefit to them by by having that be outlawed. Is what I'm saying. There's a benefit to them because they will have a child. That child will grow up. They mm-hmm. will see the the fruits of what it means to raise a child. So what I'm saying is, there's good things that come out of um, fighting for the rights that are true, blue, morally true rights for people who are not Christian as well. Mm-hmm. So yes, there's there's value there. I'm not Absolutely. trying to don't want to undermine that. Um, but in general, once again, it's, it really just depends on the word fighting, what that means there. Spiritual fighting, absolutely. Physical fighting, like to what degree do you mean this? Like defending your home? Okay, that's still a little different, mm-hmm. right? But that's not going out to the to main street, yeah. to, right? To, you know, start a fight. Keeping our priorities right, keeping our prayer life strong. That's right. Keys. And then those things, so the word fight will become fighting the good fight in a different way. All right. We're good? How can we end this? I think so. Okay. All right. I think we're good. I'm just here <laughs> drinking my coffee. All right. <laughs> okay, guys. Let us know what you think about these questions down below in the comments section. Uh, if you have any questions for future episodes, please also pop them down below or email us at hello at BibleDiscoveryTV.com. And until next time, happy reading and happy studying. We'll catch you on the next one. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high-quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under Donate. Your support really means a lot to us.